This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Welcome to Mom and Mind, where we dive into all aspects of perinatal mental health and wellness related to pregnancy, birth, loss, postpartum, and new parenthood. It's so much more than postpartum depression. We raise the volume on all of these topics in the hopes that someday everyone will have the support and info that they deserve before they need it. Please note this podcast is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. We are having a really important conversation today, one that I hadn't yet heard personally, and I'm really honored to share with you, and that is a personal story of egg donation and trauma that followed afterwards. We are talking with Megan Coltrane, who is a licensed professional counselor and who specializes in perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, working in a private practice in Asheville, North Carolina. She is here to share her personal experience of being an egg donor, which led her into the field of perinatal emotional health. I'm putting a sensitivity notice in for this episode, specifically for anyone who's experienced any type of obstetric complications or trauma related to procedures. So if that's you or anyone who's experienced that kind of trauma or something related, just think for yourself if you're ready to listen. And if not, please do feel free to wait till another time. What we're talking today is relatively rare, but it is something that happens. And as you know, on the Mom and Mind podcast, we love to really dig in and understand these complications that not that many people talk about. And I'm really honored that Megan has chosen to share her story with us so that we can learn and we can understand and we can be there to support people throughout their reproductive health and mental health experiences. So let's hear from Megan. Welcome, Megan. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I had the pleasure of meeting you recently, and I'm so grateful that you came and wanted to see about sharing your story here, and I think it's such an important one to share. I'm really, really honored to hear from you today and to also learn from you today and help everybody else understand some of the process of egg donation and what can happen. So please do, wherever you're comfortable, go ahead and start with your story. Thank you. So probably first, I'd like to say my story is uncommon. My egg donation procedure ended in complications. So what happened to me is not what happens to every egg donor. And I would like to throw out a little disclaimer for the listeners that my 
experience was traumatic and I'll be talking about some of the trauma symptoms I experienced. So if you're dealing with your own body trauma, especially trauma to the womb, this could be a little triggering. So if you need to turn it off at any point or listen another time, don't feel like you have to test yourself to sit through it. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. So I'll just start with, I guess, the process I applied to the local fertility clinic in my area. This process is different depending on every state and every clinic. But I was told I'd be a good candidate. I was 25 at the time, and I was 5'4", 120 pounds. I was healthy, never had any health problems, never even broken a bone, never been to the hospital. I had a master's degree you know, all these things that would look great on a donor profile page. Let's see, they did, you know, genetic testing, they did a physical exam, they did a psychological exam, all these things that kind of clear me as being a good candidate. And once my application was approved, it was surprisingly quick that a couple looking to do IVF chose my profile. I think it was like a matter of days after Mm. I was approved. Yeah, it happened really fast. So that meant my next menstrual cycle might be starting the process. And so I think it was about a little less than two weeks of taking fertility drugs, hormone shots, antibiotics, tons of blood tests and ultrasounds. I don't know how many ultrasounds I did. Even while I was doing this process, a second couple chose my profile. So they were already like, Whenever you're ready for your next cycle, you'll have another one ready. Like it happens so fast. Okay. So these are folks who are looking to do egg donation. Is that what it's called? Yes. That you're looking to do the egg donation and they're looking to do, sorry, what is it called on their end? Yeah. If it's a couple who's doing IVF and they also need a viable egg. So not everybody who does IVF necessarily needs an egg donation but if that's the case for them, that they would be sifting through all these donor profiles. Mm-hmm. So let's see. Yeah, I did all these fertility drugs and ultrasounds. And then once it was time for the procedure, I was under the impression it would be simple, quick, painless. And I was told I could go back to work the next day. And even my supervisors and my colleagues, you know, they all expected me at work the next day. They knew what I was doing. So once it was time for the procedure, they put me under, they sedated me. The only thing I really remember is being on an operating table, naked with a blanket over me, and then a male doctor, that's important, like walking in between my legs, and then I was out. That's all I remember until I woke up after the procedure was done, and I was told I was good to go home. So it was my mom that was with me who drove me home, and I remember I felt okay. I was still kind of just out of it, and I even told her, I was like, you can go home. I'm just going to go sleep. So she left, and then a couple hours later, I woke up to just, like, go to the bathroom, and I fainted, Hmm. and it was really scary because I was home by myself. I had never fainted before, so I just woke up on the floor. I called the on-call nurse like they told me to, and she said, oh, it's probably just you know, some of the sedation or whatever is still in, in my system. And I was probably dehydrated. I just needed to, you know, drink some water and electrolytes. So, okay, I did that. And then I went back to sleep. I woke up with some pain in my abdomen. And basically just through the night, the pain just got worse and worse and worse to the point where I remember laying on my bed, shaking, and I was so cold 
but I was in too much pain to get under the covers. Mm-hmm. And I was in so much pain. And I figured I was like, okay, I'm not going to work tomorrow. You know, tell my supervisor not to expect me. And then I got this like sudden sharp pain in my abdomen that was so painful. I like lost complete control of my vocals. I was screaming in pain. I had never in my life felt anything like that. And just to give you a reference, I have tattoos all over my back. Like I'm not, you know, unfamiliar to pain. So this was like a whole nother level. This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go. And that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Uliana Ortube. And she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder, and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, this must be what a heart attack feels like. Mm-hmm. I knew it wasn't because it was too low. It was in my abdomen, but I had these like shooting pains all up into my chest, and I didn't know what it was. And... So I called the on-call nurse again and I told her what happened and she prescribed me Tylenol with codeine. Wow. So I was like, okay. <laughs> and uh, that she seems was, inappropriate. Well, <laughs> you know, I didn't know. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, I guess she knows what she's talking about. So, right. you know, she asked me to scale your pain one out of 10. And I said, mm-hmm. you know, it's a 10. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. a new 10 that I've never had this 10 before. This is a whole new 10. Oh, gosh. And she did say, if it gets worse, you'll have to go to the hospital. So luckily, I had a roommate at the time, and she picked up that prescription for me. So I definitely was not in any shape to drive. Right. I took it. I remember, like, turning off the light and thinking, okay, okay, I'm going to be okay. And then it happened again. Mm-hmm. And later, I found out what was happening was ovarian torsion, which oh, basically my ovaries were bleeding from the procedure they didn't stop bleeding. So my ovaries were twisting on themselves. And that's what that like really intense pain was. 
So, oh, I probably should have explained the procedure is intravaginal, but there's a needle that goes through the ovary and kind of like suctions out the eggs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, and they retrieved 20 eggs from me. Oh, was that part of like the plan? The plan is to get as many as possible. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So, you know, I took all these hormones, injections and stuff, Mm -hmm. and they did these ultrasounds to keep an eye on like how many eggs they were starting to see. So once a good amount, they would do it. So they retrieved 20. Okay. So the needle goes into your ovary to retrieve those eggs. Yes. And that's where I was bleeding from Mm. and then experienced this ovarian torsion. So once it happened a second time, And I was, again, like screaming in pain. My roommate came and got me, and she took me to the ER. Mm -hmm. And I just remember, like, my whole body was just shaking until they hooked me up with an IV and hooked the local hospital, gave me fentanyl, and that, like, just barely took the edge off. (laughs) They admitted me to the women's surgical unit, all these narcotics. And I was pretty out of it for the rest of the experience in the hospital. I was there for about three days. And I remember there was twice that they restricted my diet and told me, you know, we might have to prepare you for surgery so we can't let you eat. And I didn't know what that meant. I was like, surgery? Well, okay. Well, I don't, you know, whatever. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But luckily after three days in the hospital, my hemoglobin levels went back up and they were stable and there was no surgery. I didn't need surgery. And then they told me on discharge, they said it was really good that we didn't have to do surgery because that would have meant we would have had to take out your ovaries. Oh gosh. What? I almost lost my ovaries. Like how, what? Yeah. <laughs> wow. So fortunately, you know, the doctors from the hospital and the doctors from the fertility clinic told me there wouldn't be any permanent damage to my ovaries or my fertility. But of course, I did not trust them at this point. Sure. So I went to a local OB. And this technically was like the sixth doctor I saw who Mm. told me I was going to be okay. And that's what it took for me. I mean, it took me Mm -hmm. six doctors. And that might sound, you know, like crazy or irrational, but I was not very trusting of many doctors after this point. I don't blame especially, you. Yeah, especially because I went back for my follow-up to the fertility clinic, and I was still, like, bleeding really heavily, and I was, like, crying every day. I was so anxious. I just felt mm-hmm. like I was crawling out of my skin. Everything, I was just so terrified that at any moment something was wrong with my body and something was going to happen. I wouldn't know what it is or what was happening, and... So I told the doctor at the fertility clinic during my follow-up, I said, I am not okay. I am crying every day. Like, I just feel so shaken up all the time. And he told me, you know, basically it was just, you know, me coming off all these hormones. Hmm. And so, of course, at that moment, I just like shut down and I was like, all right, just get me out of here. I don't want to deal with y'all anymore. Mm -hmm. And So um, you felt dismissed at that point? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And well, also too, like while I was in the hospital, the fertility clinic had kind of like a liaison between me and the egg recipients because we didn't have any option to know anything about each other. Some states are different in that way, but I didn't have the option to choose if I wanted to know whether it was successful, anything about the recipients. And they don't know anything about me other than what was on my profile. So I told this liaison, I said, you know, I was still in the hospital and I was crying on the phone to her. I was like, please, I do not want to do this again. Tell that other couple that I can't do this again. 
my physical recovery was pretty much complete after like a week or two, but the emotional distress was so far worse. I mean, my heart was just racing all the time. I was easily startled by loud noises. I was constantly terrified that something bad was going to happen or something Mm. was like seriously wrong with my body. Mm -hmm. I was so scared all the time. Yeah, I remember I needed to hang a picture on my wall and I had to stand on a footstool and it took me so long to do it because every time I stood on this footstool, my body would just tense up and I would just Mm. start shaking and I was just so scared of hurting myself. Sure, right. And another weird experience for me about this was that my body responded as if this procedure had been like a sexual assault. Mm. Like I had just all of a sudden developed this like fear of men. Mm. Every time I was in the presence of a male, I was just so hyper aware of where he was, what he was doing. I wouldn't look them in the eye. I didn't want to be around any men especially doctors. Mm -hmm. I was in a relationship at the time and I broke up with him and completely cut him out with very little explanation. And luckily he respected my boundaries about that and was really patient with me because we got back together and now we're married. (laughs) (laughs) But at the time I was almost like in survival mode. I just felt like I had to shut everybody out and just like hunker down Mm -hmm. And it took everything for me to just get through the day. I mean, I still would go to work, but I mean, sometimes I just had to like shut the door and cry in my office. I was working with women with PTSD and like sometimes I would like disassociate in my office and I I had to talk to my supervisor about switching my caseload around and, and they were very respectful and helpful about that. But yeah, I was setting a lot of boundaries and I was definitely kind of like shutting out people of my life unless it was like my therapist Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, or people who like needed to know what was going on. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was just in the survival mode and was having like really irrational fears. And I kept having repeated nightmares of being on the operating table and the Mm -hmm. doctor raping me. Oh my gosh. I knew it was illogical. I knew that couldn't have happened, but that's how this procedure affected me. I felt like yeah, I felt like I had been assaulted. And then, you know, of course, then it would come all the guilt. Well, you signed up for this, you know, I volunteered for this, and you put your body at this risk. And yeah, it was all that stuff. So like self blame? Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And I was depressed. I had no appetite. I was losing weight. My pants were falling off me. Mm. I was exhausted all the time. I remember my dog was like trying to play with me and I would just like stare at her and cry because normally, you know, she's like the light of my life and I love like cuddling and playing with her. And oh, it was just, yeah, I was a mess. I was really a mess. This is really intense. So how far past the procedure (sighs) are you talking now? Honestly, this lasted for months Mm -hmm. to, well, until finally... I was seeing my primary therapist. I mean, really, it lasted closer to a year. And at some point during that time, I ended up getting on medication Mm -hmm. um, because I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I was just not functioning very well at all. So I was seeing my primary therapist, and I was going to this yoga for trauma class, which Mm -hmm. was awesome. I really loved it. 
but I would cry through all the classes. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time we had to go into like the happy baby pose, which you're like laying on your back with your feet kind of up in the air, very similar to how you would lay in an ultrasound. And I couldn't even do it. Like my body just froze. Mm -hmm. And as soon as the class was over, I just ran to my car and just sobbed because it it just felt like it was all happening all over again. And so I started seeing the woman who did that yoga for trauma class. She is also a social worker and I was seeing her privately in addition to my primary therapist. And then I started seeing a psychiatrist too to do medication to help me sleep and help me eat. I was really just open to any and all forms of healing. I mean, I would do like an experiential workshop for self-care and I was definitely like setting a lot of boundaries in my life. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, people at work, the people closest to me, not everybody, obviously, but the people who I was working with every day, like my supervisor and my colleagues, they knew a little bit about what was going on because they just, you know, wanted to support me if I needed Mm a break or anything. So that first year after the procedure, I just intensely threw myself into self-healing at at any kind of avenue I could find. Mm -hmm. And it was awesome. I mean, it was really helpful. I'm really glad that I did the yoga for trauma. Once I got to a place where I could actually feel more connected to my body again, Mm -hmm. I started doing TRE, trauma releasing exercises with another therapist. Mm -hmm. That was really cool. That was helpful. It was really helpful. I did some EMDR with my primary therapist. I was on medication for about a year. And then I worked with the psychiatrist about tapering off of it because I didn't feel like I needed it anymore. And I've been great ever since. I really haven't needed it at all. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's been such a journey healing from this. I surrounded myself with women. One thing I probably do want to add though, is that even though I have done so much healing. Of course, you know, once in a while, there might be something that kind of triggers me. Even though I was going through a lot of the healing process, every once in a while, there would be something that would feel like I would take a step backward. Like the fertility clinic, they kept calling me repeatedly asking me to donate again because that second couple was like, they really wanted the profile they chose. And every time they would call me, it would just send me into this panic. And you had already told them no? Oh, and they yes. kept calling? Yes, multiple mm-hmm. times. That's kind of like another issue I have with the whole process. It's oh, like yeah. they did not respect that I said, you know, leave me alone. <laughs> I yeah. don't want to do this again. And it felt like, you know, if I lost my ovaries, what do they care? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I signed a paper that I'm aware that I could have physical risk, you know, physical consequences. So, you know, like I just kind of felt like as if I was treated like a machine mm-hmm. that gave them their product. Wow. Yeah. Oh, um, right. So, I mean, even thinking back to the beginning of your story here, you're, you're calling them with concerns and they're really not taking you very seriously or you didn't sound like it anyways. No, um, I don't really feel like they took me seriously, but I also kind of wonder if like what happened to me is pretty rare that maybe they just didn't know how to handle it. I don't know. I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, I guess. Maybe they didn't know how to handle it. They hadn't maybe seen it before. Maybe they were scared, like liability reasons. So the process was outlined to you. And I think what you're saying, most people's experience is that you take these medications, you have the retrieval procedure, and then you're pretty much fine the next day aside from potentially, you know, withdraw from the hormones. 
Yeah, they told me I would only have to expect maybe some like mild abdominal cramping and some spotting. <laughs> uh huh. And then no discussion about the hormones and there was no, no nope nope no discussion injecting. of hormones, no discussion uh-huh. of mental health. Uh-huh. You know, they had a psych eval to accept me, but there was no follow up. Mm. You know, to just check in with me and see how I was doing. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, that's something that's, you know, kind of one of the reasons why I offered to share my story is because I don't want to discourage anyone from donating their eggs or receiving eggs. What I really would love is if these facilities had some more trauma informed care and, you know, kind of had been more thorough with me in talking about the risk involved And if they had just taken care of me afterward, you know, if, I mean, Mm -hmm. I felt like they just washed their hands of me, you know, and even when I told them I don't want to donate anymore, you know, they needed to respect that. And I think, you know, hopefully with time and more people telling their stories that these clinics will have a little more regulation and understanding of like how to treat their egg donors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this seems just the standard of care could be elevated. And like you said, having more trauma-informed care, having better follow-up, having more disclosure of, or even understanding of the impacts on mental health, maybe specifically related to the hormones and the withdrawal from the hormones and the procedures. And, and this is a lot of space for improvement. Definitely. And I would love to help in that. I mean, I've started doing some trauma-informed care trainings, facilitating them, and someday I would love to go back to this particular clinic and do a trauma-informed care training. (laughs) Yeah. So they knew that you had had this complication Mm -hmm. and still didn't follow up with you. The only follow-up was asking me to donate again. Mm -hmm. Right. So, wow, that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty intense there. Wow. I mean, this is so much. This was like a year and a half of your life. I mean, how long? Well, let's see. Quite quite a bit of time. Yeah, it definitely was a bit of time. And, you know, egg donors do get like a financial compensation, but it was so not worth it. It's taxed on the same level as like lottery winnings. (laughs) So yeah. And then like 50%. It's something ridiculous. Like I owed a lot of taxes that year. And then, you know, I missed like a week of work. I had all these, you know, bills from like therapy and psychiatrists. And like, I mean, it was just so not worth it at all. But I do kind of battle with like, you know, if I were to go back, you know, I can't say I would do it again. I mean, I wish it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. But it also gave me a lot of insight into PTSD symptoms mm-hmm. and just the trauma that can happen to a woman's womb and all of the, oh my gosh, all the layers that can come with that. Right. And like when I started talking to women around me, mm-hmm. the stories just start coming out of the woodwork of oh, really? women who like maybe they had an abortion or maybe they were going through fertility issues or they had a birth trauma and it was like, oh my gosh, I get it. Like, it just gave me so much more compassion for all of these experiences. And yeah, it's given me just a lot more insight too and how to take care of myself and set boundaries for myself. And Sure. Right. So the, the kind of perinatal mental health part of all of this was, I'll just say, severely neglected from all the, the treating providers that you had to go on this long journey of figuring out what was going on and how to take care of yourself and 
how to heal from all of this. I mean, this seems like a massive gap in our services that just services in general to be able to support women who want to be egg donors. And I know you said that your story is rare, that that's more typical for people to just kind of bounce back and go back to their lives. But, you know, the significance of you sharing your story and all of us hearing about it and understanding that these things can go wrong just deepens our ability to have compassion for women who are going through any kind of obstetrical trauma related to procedures or, you know, pregnancy or postpartum or birth. I mean, it's another really important facet of reproductive health. Yeah, thank you. And even though what happened to me was rare, I know I'm not the only one out there. There's Mm -hmm. this blog website called We Are Egg Donors. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of stories out there of women similar to me, you know, perfectly healthy before an egg donation. And then after dealing with some really long term consequences. Hmm. And I guess I'm sort of assuming from your story, and maybe even, I don't know, I'll go check out the We Are Egg Donors that these complications aren't really discussed in depth? Potential for these complications are not discussed by the providers? I think they could have done a much better job discussing that more thoroughly. I mean, I don't really remember them sitting me down and explaining to me the risk. I mean, I did my homework. Like, I researched a lot of stuff before Mm -hmm. I chose to do this, but I also was like, oh, this is so rare. You know, this wouldn't happen to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I really don't remember anyone from the clinic like sitting down with me. Mm-hmm. And I look back at the contract and there's just one sentence that says, like, I realize there could be potential consequences to my physical health. And mm-hmm. that's it. So mm-hmm. not really in detail about like ovarian hyperstimulation or ovarian hematoma or torsion or anything about the specific risk. Mm-hmm. And not verbally either. Not that I remember, but I don't remember a lot of it. <laughs> Yeah, kind of blocked a lot of it out. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners 
on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is a lot for you to go through and a lot for your body to go through also just to recover from that and the the trauma. You said PTSD. So this was a part of your diagnosis was depression and PTSD. Yeah, the psychiatrist diagnosed me with anxiety, depression and PTSD. And I remember when she said that, I was like, you think I have PTSD? And because <laughs> I'm like, I'm a clinician, I'm trained in the symptoms and I was still in denial of that. So that's how powerful denial can be. I almost started to argue with her, but then I actually couldn't think of a symptom that I wasn't experiencing. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in that point right there because I think it's common. I think it's common for all of us, even when we do know the diagnostic categories, but certainly for people who don't, it's really easy to just kind of, I don't know, somehow not actively deny, but just discount the symptoms or discount what's happening as it's happening. But like you said, there's also no way of denying that something's not right. Absolutely. I was in denial. I mean, I thought, okay, maybe I just have like depression from a traumatic experience. But I guess, I don't know, PTSD, you know, it just sounds bad. But Mm-hmm. It did explain the symptoms I was dealing with. And I remember looking back at the DSM when I was actually looking at diagnosing a client. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember looking at, okay, what's the timeline if they've had symptoms for it's one month in the DSM. And I've read that a thousand times. Mm-hmm. But for some reason now, it felt like the first time I was reading it because it had been well over a month that I was having my symptoms. So I was like, oh, crap. I've been having these for over a month. Like that does mean I fit the criteria for this. I mean, you know, I think we all wish, you know, we don't want to be as bad off as we might maybe really are. And yeah, denial is pretty powerful, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. And I think it's there for a reason sometimes because when you, sometimes when you actually realize kind of how difficult things are or how bad you feel, there's this other level and layer of dealing with that reality. It's hard to sit with. Yeah. But it's sort of also the key to getting better. Absolutely. Um, It's it's a really tough spot. Yeah. I'm curious. I mean, there's so many things to know and understand about this, and we're getting some really great insight and information. But what do you think? What do you wish people would understand about this process and its impact specifically on mental health, perinatal mental health? I guess initially... I thought about how I specialize in perinatal mental health and I've been going to all these trainings and hearing all these women's stories. And I kept feeling like, you know, my experience as an egg donor, like this fits, this fits in with this umbrella somehow, but I don't ever hear about it. And I, it's, you know, just like a traumatic birth, for example, like, okay, a lot of births go fine and go okay. But every once in a while, a woman has a really traumatic experience giving birth. And that's something, you know, I think we're still talking more about mm-hmm. and learning more about. But similar to my experience, yeah, most egg donation procedures go fine. But once in a while, they don't. Mm-hmm. And my hope is just to kind of bring that, this piece into the light as well. And overall, like I like to say, I work with 
trauma to the womb Mm -hmm. because whatever actual traumatic experience it was, you know, they're also different. But there's these like really similar parallels to what women experience when they have a trauma to the womb. Mm. And ultimately just learning more about that for the whole community and how to help heal each other, you know, heal women of the world. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, for really for these facilities, you know, doctors, hospitals, all of them to just incorporate more trauma informed care. That's my biggest hope. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I would like to share one more thing that I'm just feeling really called to share right now. Mm -hmm. When a couple weeks after the procedure, I was in the throes of all these symptoms. A really good friend of mine told me that she had made the decision to go with an egg donor. And she was like, she knew exactly what I was going through. She was right there with me. And she told me that she lit a candle and said a prayer for the woman who was donating mm-hmm. that egg. And that was a powerfully healing moment for me mm. because I love this woman and I wanted her to have a baby and I wanted her egg donation to be successful. And it was, and she has a beautiful baby now and I'm so happy for her. But the fact that she was with me through that and just had this moment of seeing me, but also like whoever else that anonymous egg donor is, something about that was just so healing to me. And I guess anyone out there who might be listening, who has had an egg donor, I don't know, you know, share a little space for them in Mm -hmm. some way, even if you never see them or talk to them or anything, just to be like seen in that way was really powerful. That really is powerful. And I really appreciate that you felt called to bring that in and you did. It really gives light to the kind of full spectrum of this part of process from, you know, egg donation and then the person receiving it, that there is a full process happening and there's an energy exchange, an exchange of life on some level. And to be mindful about honoring that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is really powerful. Are there any other words of hope or advice you'd give to other either egg donors or people using egg donor support? Maybe just to any woman who may experience a traumatic situation to their womb, just to be open to any kinds of healing and to surround yourself with people who feel safe and who are going to respect you and respect your boundaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, try out any and all kinds of healing because that's what worked for me. I mean, some things, you know, didn't really work. And so I didn't keep doing that. But then the things that did work, like really helped. So I'm glad I tried a lot of different things. And so for egg donors specifically, if you want to do it, do it. But if you do find yourself in a situation that it doesn't go as planned, or you need to back out, please back out, like just check in with yourself and honor yourself and whatever you need. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. And so for those people who are receiving an egg donor, to the egg recipient, just light a candle and say a prayer for that egg and for the woman that donated that egg. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience and, you know, showing this other side. I think there's probably all of this unseen forces of how things are going to go and what our expectations are that can be kind of, you know, applied to these situations as well. We always are hoping for the best and gosh, when things don't go how it's expected or how you hope or plan, it would be great to have adequate support in place. 
And I'm so sorry that you didn't. And I'm glad you found your way through and figured out how to take care of yourself. I just wish that more support had been in place with for you earlier on. Thank you. Well, hopefully we'll change that. Yes, I do believe that. I believe having conversations like this, you being open to sharing your story and then those who are listening to share this with, you know, five other people and just spreading the word that these things, while rare, can happen and that you're not alone if it does happen and there are ways to heal and get through this just like you did. Yes, thank you. Well, thanks again, Megan, for coming on. I appreciate you sharing with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Megan, for sharing your story with us and shedding light on this rare but really, really important for us to know information about your experience, but also, you know, what might be happening to other people who are experiencing obstetric complications or having trauma from procedures. This is one of those things that we just don't know all of the ins and outs about how mental health is impacted specifically from these types of procedures. So having this information is really, really important. If you guys would like to get connected with Megan, please find her at megancoltrain.com. And if you know anybody who could benefit from this episode or this podcast, please do share and as far and as wide as possible. It's really important that we're getting this information out so that people going through this can feel understood and heard and so that medical providers and therapists can have really great information to be able to support our patients and clients better. Thank you all for being with us today, and until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.